So tonight we're going to look at King Solomon, anointed wise builder uh, in 1 Kings from 1 to 9. So you thought you were going to get off easy with only 1 to 7, but it's 1 to 9. And we're in our study through the Bible as we continue to look at the history of the nation of Israel or God's chosen people. Way back in Deuteronomy, we read this uh, when uh, God chose them. He says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more, new, more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh in the land of Egypt." So we're still telling that story, and we're into the kings now. We finished First and Second Samuel, but a little bit of overview. The first, first and Second Kings, like Samuel and Chronicles, were originally one book. There was no division; it was just carried on. But in the canonization of Scripture, it was separated. Kings records for us the principal events and characteristics of the king of. Israel, the kings of Israel and Judah, as they separate from the death of David until the end of the kingdom of Judah and the fall of Jerusalem. The time period we're in right now is about 1000 BC down to 930 BC, where we've just seen 40 years of the rule of David. We're going to see 40 years of the rule of King Solomon. Both Israel and Judah, as they divide, will have a series of 19 kings, some good, some bad. Uh, Israel will cover a period of about 210 years and Judah about 345 years as they are carried away from Jerusalem. But so far with this thing about a king, we've seen that the people wanted a king and they cried out and they got Saul, a tall, handsome guy. But God chose David, a shepherd boy, the youngest of of a group of brothers. But he became a giant killer a great warrior, a nation builder, and a songwriter. But he did mess up. We've seen that. It cost him. It cost his family. We'll see more of that tonight. And it cost his nation. So let me read to you from Second uh, Samuel, something that we studied just a couple weeks ago. When Nathan proclaimed to David his sin and called him out on it, he said this, Why have you despised the commandments of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. And therefore the sword shall never depart from your your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife." We saw last week with Absalom a megalomaniac. His son, Solomon's son, starts to divide the nation. He sat at the gate judging people. He stole their hearts. We read these these verses as we looked at at Absalom. Uh, Now, in all Israel, there was no one 
who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. That's what our wives say about us guys, right? There's no blemishes in us. After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The first half of the book of Kings is about the life of Solomon. A united Israel. It rises to its peak in power and glory. The temple represents the greatest of God to the nation, the greatest of greatness of God to the nations and brings Solomon worldwide fame and respect. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the book of 1 Kings, as we look at these chapters tonight, help us to glean not just the knowledge of the story, but some practical applications that we can use. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the chronicler, the, the, the writer of the stories of 1 Kings, Samuels, and Chronicles, he's telling a story of things that went on. And so, you know, sometimes it's a mystery story. Sometimes it's written like a book today or like some of the mystery movies we might watch. There's clues that are given out as we go through it that you might not catch, but you need to catch those as you're reading because he'll drop a few hints here and there, and if we're smart, we'll catch them. So chapter 1, poor David, old and on his deathbed, yet another megalomaniac, Adonijah. In the very first verse of this story, we see one of those clues. Listen to it. Now, King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, but he could not get, wor- get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman, a virgin, be sought for our Lord, the king, and let her stand before the king and in her care, and in her care for him, and let her... Uh, be in your bosom that our Lord the King may be warm. So they sought for a lovely young woman throughout all the territory of Ishmael, and they found Abishak, the Shumanite, who they brought to the king. The young woman was very lovely, and she cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. The very first verses here is the story we found to serve King David. And a clue is there. We'll see if you guys can pick it up. In verse 5, we see that Absalom's brother, Adonijah, starts to exalt himself. Right away, Adonijah, the son of Haggai, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Didn't that sound familiar? sounded just like what his brother did. So, he gets a bunch of guys to come and join him, some from the, the army, other areas. But it's really a coup. It's a conspiracy that's going on. And what a great setup for this. You've got David, who's old and failing, feeble. You've got Solomon, who's young and immature. You've got Adonijah, the son, very handsome, just like his brother. And then he's backed up by the military and the priest, Joab and Abathar, head of the priest and the head of the army. So in verses 11 to 13, our buddy Nathan comes on the scene again. Verse 11, So Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, 
Have you not heard what Abdonai, the son of Hagrath, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Come, please, let me now give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go immediately to the king David and to, and to him and say to him, did you, did, you, did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservants, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Then while you are still taking, talk, taking there with, talking with, there with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm these words. Tell us about the story, the plot, the conspiracy. Didn't you swear that it was going to be Solomon? And look at verse 22. I found this really interesting. Nathan came in. Bathsheba's in his bedroom, in the bedchamber. And Nathan the prophet came in to David. This is the end of his life. Now Nathan kind of rebuked him before, didn't he? He said, you did this and you did this. And David kept him around. You know, I think that there's a place for us to encourage one another. I won't use the word rebuke or reproof. Those are harsh words. But there's times for us to encourage one another in love. If I see you doing something that's not appropriate or or messing around with something that's not good for you, if I come alongside and encourage you, it'll build our relationship, not tear it down. That's what happened here with Nathan. He's still close to David, even though he was the one who called him out. Verses 28 to 30, David takes an oath and he calls for his leaders to come in. And he tells them to carry out his decree and they anoint him. So let's look at that. We'll start with verse um, 28. Then King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so I certainly will do it. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and paid homage to the king and said, Let my lord King David live forever. And David said, Come, to me, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jeronan. So they came before him, before the king. The king also said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and from Solomon my son, ride on my own mule, and take him down to Gihon. Then let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel, and blow the horn. And say, Long live the king Solomon. Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come up and sit on my throne. And he shall be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be the ruler over Israel and Judah. Again, we'll look at that next verse in a minute. So he does that. So the five things that Solomon said to do is make it obvious to the people who I've chosen. Let him ride on my mule. Let Zadok and Nathan anoint him with oil. Blow the horn. Say, long live King Solomon. And then let him sit on my throne. 
But look at verse 36. I think this is something we can learn and something that would be good for us to practice. Benaniah, the son of Jehodiah, answered the king and said, Amen. May the Lord God of my Lord, the king, say so too. Has anybody ever come up to you and said, oh, I've got this great idea for a ministry. I think if we just go out here and we do some tracks and we do this and that and we offer a chili cook-off day and we bring the people in here for that, it's going to be a wonderful thing. Amen. I hope the Lord's in it too. It's a neat little prayer that he's saying, amen, but let's make sure it's the will of God. I think so, so often we can kind of get behind that. That unless the Lord God says amen too, and the word amen means so be it, um, to the selection of Solomon, he would not stand. Benaiah sensed that this was the will of God, but he wanted to offer this prayer to make it sure. What a good principle for us to remember when we're praying that we would say amen, that God would in fact say so too. In verse verse 43, uh, Adonai, who had lifted himself up, um, says this, then, then Jonathan answered and said to Adoniah, No, not so, Lord King. David has made Solomon king. And then in verse 49 and 50, So the guests who were with him, he was having a party, were afraid and arose, and each one of them went their way. And Adoniah was afraid of Solomon. I would be too. So he arose and he went away with him. Brings us to chapter 2, and here we're going to see the death of David. We're going to see David's charge to his son, and Adoniah goes a little bit too far. So what does David say here in chapter 2 to Solomon, his son? Here are some good words for us today that we can remember. He says um, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. Remember, he was young. It could be that he was still a teenager. And keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his, testim- and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go. And so you flip over to the Psalms, and David says this in Psalms 19. And listen to the same words that he did when he charged his son to keep the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure and enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgment of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. It was so obvious that David was talking to Solomon about something he believed because he had written this already. He's on his deathbed. He's not writing down these psalms just before he dies. He's been writing them his whole life, that the word of the Lord is so important. As Brandon read this evening, that's on the back of our bulletin because we believe that. So in Psalms 119, 
We'll take a, a short look at that psalm. No, we won't. We're going to read one section. There's, there's 20, uh, I think there's 22 sections. It's the Hebrew alphabet. They're broken off into eight stanzas. I'm going to read you one of them that, again, listen for those same words of commandments and judgments and statutes and law. So this is the second, the second stanza. It's called Beth. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all your judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. As much as all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. What powerful words for us to do. And that's exactly what David is telling Solomon here. Now, I've shared this with you before, but since there's only 22 of them, and they're really short, if you put a number on them, just like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 to 22, and you start on the first of the month, and you read them, like every day you read one little section, and you do that for 10 or 12 times during the year, you will understand how important the Word of God is. I guarantee it. Some of you say you've tried that and you got through number one or number two and then you had to wait till the next month started to start over. You don't have to do that. You just pick up whatever day it is, like today's the seventh, you can turn over here to number seven and you read it. And it really works. Um, whether you do it first thing in the morning or last thing at night, it makes the word of God important to us. A principle that David was telling his son. And then in verses 10 to 12 of the second chapter, we read about the death of of David. So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. That's so important that his, that's the thing that David did. I think there's two great things. One is he built the nation. He brought the nation together. He brought the tribes together. He conquered the land. And then he wrote the Psalms. What a wonderful thing that David has done for us and given us those Psalms. And then in verses 13 to 18, Adonijah just goes a little too far. Remember the clue we were given back in chapter 1, the verse 2 and 4? This beautiful young virgin was taking care of King David. That was a clue. Something was going to happen with her. Something more than just that little piece of taking care of David. So here's what happens. He asked Beersheba to ask Solomon for Abishak. And here's the way that story goes. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggath, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, you come peacefully. And he said, peacefully. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, say it. Then he said, you know what the kingdom was mine, that the kingdom was mine and all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's for it was his from the Lord. Now I ask one petition of you. Do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. Then he said, Please speak to King Solomon, for he will not 
um, refuse you that he may give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as a wife. So Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak to the king. So the clue that we were looking at was there, but there was another clue. Do you remember what happened, what Absalom did to David's concubines? In chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, where we read, So they pitched a tent for Absalom on top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Which is, again, part of what Nathan had said was going to happen. Now, uh, Adjaniah is asking for the same thing. That those concubines that were King David when he died became Solomon's. He inherited the kingdom. So he's reminding him of this. So um, in that request, I thought it was interesting. He said, I know that the kingdom belongs to Solomon. It's from the Lord. So then in chapter 2, verse 46, we read this. Again, thus the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. By the way, in between those verses, the conspirators, they were killed or exiled. So yeah, he's moving on pretty quick. In chapter 3, it's a great story. Solomon asked for wisdom. So we've seen him being anointed, chapter, chapter 1. Now we see him being asking for wisdom. So the first thing he does in those first few verses is he secures the relationship with Egypt and joins the people in sacrificing on the high places. So let's pick it up at verse 3. Uh, let's do verse 2. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in his statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burnt incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at, by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant, David my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on the throne as it is today. Verse 7. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out and come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be counted or numbered or counted. Therefore, to your servant... Give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to judge this great people of yours. The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself nor asked for riches for yourself nor have asked for the life of your enemies but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice Behold, I have done according to your words. 
See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall anyone like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings at all your days. So if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. That word accept in there kind of grabbed me because we need to be careful with the exceptions we make when it comes to the things of the Lord. You remember in James, this little passage, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now, if you do commit adultery but you do not murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. He's did something wrong here. He went to the high places. The high places were where the pagans worshipped. It was where the sacrifices of the, to the pagan gods were being done. But the people were being drawn there because that's what they had been doing. So he went with them. But the bottom line in all that is that we need a savior and we need a redeemer. In verses 5 to 15, Solomon had this dream. Started with a sacrifice in the high places, but it ended well. It ended with sacrifice in Jerusalem before the Ark of the Covenant. But look at verse 12 as he's explaining this, as, it's, as the, the writer is giving us this. He says, but I have done according to your words. That's the Lord speaking. I have done according to your words. I wonder if Solomon prayed when he prayed. We'll look at it, one of his prayers coming up here in a minute had the words before him that David had been writing down the songs. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart. Wouldn't it be great if we prayed and we had a wise and an understanding heart? What would happen if we prayed with our Bibles open and prayers before us and the word of God before us and we were reading something like those passages that I read you from, uh, from Psalms about the word of God and stuff like that. And we prayed, Lord, this is what I want. And we could confirm it with scripture. What happens when we pray according to God's will? I believe that his word wins out. So when you have your word out before you meditate on a verse, you don't have to read a whole chapter when you do this. Find a verse that talks about a principle of God. Read one of those small sections of Psalms 119 as you're praying, keep your word before you. I think it'll help us in our prayers to accomplish much. Now, wisdom that Solomon asked for differs from knowledge. You're getting some knowledge about Scripture tonight. You're learning some things about the history. I gave you some dates and I gave you some events that have happened. And that's knowledge. But wisdom is what do you do with that knowledge? What do you do with that word except in the middle of that? 
Do you come to understand that, man, in my life as I walk and I talk to people that I, I'm supposed to be loving, if I don't keep, if I'm bitter against them, if I'm angry with them, if I'm not friendly to them, I've keeping most of the law except for that guy. I just can't handle it. That's exactly what was happening here. Is he didn't keep the whole law. He had broken the law in a part. And so that exception was a big thing. Wisdom differs from knowledge. Facts versus the use of facts. In verses um, 16 uh, to 18, he gives us a great little illustration of wisdom. I like it when the speaker also gives his own illustrations. But you know, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. It's the best place to get illustrations. You know this story. The two women have babies. One of the babies dies. The woman rolls over on him, so she steals the other baby, and now they're fighting over the baby. Tug of war is going on. Can you imagine two people with a baby getting in a fight over something like that to where they couldn't even get it solved themselves, but they had to take it to a higher authority? So they bring it to, to um, Solomon. Solomon says, no problem. Give me a sword, and we'll cut the baby in half, and you each have, a, have one. And then, of course, the story ends with these verses in verse 27, chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is the mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So he's asked for wisdom, he's gotten wisdom, he's been anointed, and now he's received the wisdom that the Lord has given him. And now, with those things going on, he sets up his administration of his kingdom. So in chapter 4, we see that in the first few verses, so King Solomon was king over Israel, and there these were the officers, Azariah the son of Zadok, the priest, Elham and Ethjah, the sons of of Shesah, scribes, Jehoshaphat, the son of Aaron, the recorders. So he had a scribes, he had recorders. In verse 4, he has someone over the army. In verse um, 6, he has someone over the labor force. And then in verse 7, it talks about 12 governors. So Solomon is setting up his kingdom. And um, he, God says, because you've given me wisdom, I will make you rich and I will give you honor. Remember back in chapter 3, Verse 7, 11, he said, Because you asked for wisdom, I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm going to give you riches and honor. And then we want to read a little bit about what King Solomon had at this time, because again, this is the very top of um, the pinnacle of the nation of Israel. So starting with verse 20 in chapter 4. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand of the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river of the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pasture, and 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tibash even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side and all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, 
Can you imagine, can't you just see him sitting there picking off some grapes and getting some dates and just sitting there and just hanging out? From Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon, things were really going well. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And these governors, each man in his mouth, provided food for the king in his month, provided king for Solomon. And for all who came to King Solomon's table, there was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw and, and the proper, in the proper place for the horses and the steeds, each man according to the, his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all wisdom of Egypt. And then he lists out their names. Verse 32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. I'm still working on my first song. And he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon even to the hyssop and the springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things and of fish. And men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. I think it's important to note that the, in verse 25, that Judah and Israel dwelt safely and they were completely under the control. So there's, here we are with the peak of the nation of Israel. This is the time when everything is going well. And now Solomon be, uh, becomes the builder. He wants to build the temple. So chapter 5, let's start with verse 3. Well, this is a letter that uh, so, uh, Solomon wrote to the king of Tyre. Then Solomon sent to, to Hiram, and he said this. It's interesting that David is speaking to a pagan, someone who's not Hebrew, someone who doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's careful to pay attention and name Yahweh and be very uh, outspoken about it. So verse 3, You know how my father David would not build a house for the name, would, would not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God, Yahweh my God, has given me rest on every side that is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of, the, of Yahweh my God, as the Yahweh spoke to my father David, saying, Your son whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Solomon refers over and over to Yahweh, and Hiram writes back that Yahweh gave him a wise son. Actually, over in Second Chronicles, again, if you have a chronological Bible, this is a great place to use it, but the, the references between Chronicles and Kings and, and Samuel are a lot. But the letter that, uh, that, Sol- that Solomon sent uh, over is expanded in the Chronicles, and the answer is something that's amazing. So let me read you this one. So uh, Solomon sent this letter to Hiram, the king of Tyre. Behold, I am building a temple for the name of the Yahweh, my God, to dedicate it to him, to burn before him sweet incense for the continual showbread and for burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbath, on new moons, and on the set feast of the Lord our God. This is a feast entrance forever to Israel, and the temple which I build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a temple since heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? 
Who am I that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifices before him? And then Hiram writes back this, Blessed be the Yahweh, God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, for he has given King David a wise son, endowed with prudence and understanding, who will build a temple for the Yahweh and royal house for himself. So a pretty amazing conversation is going back and forth between Solomon and the pagan king of Tyre. In chapter 6, Solomon builds the temple. It's the right time. Remember in chapter 425, it said that Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree. And it says that in verse chapter 5, verse 4, Now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. So great peace, it's time to build. Now for you designers and contractors and handymen, it's interesting to me, if you read this, that you noted that the tabernacle, or the, the temple is not very big. It's probably somewhere around 75 feet wide and 110 feet long, so about 8,300 square feet. Small in comparison to some of our churches today. But remember, it was not built to hold a congregation. It was built where people were to assemble. It wasn't built for people to be assembled in it, but to worship, to, but to bring offerings towards it as it was the meeting place of God. You know, we do not need to build such important church buildings. There was a time when that was what was being done, that all the church buildings were, how big can we make it, how, how glorious can we make it, and things like that. And then all of a sudden, there was a change. And people started using warehouses. And start, people started uh, having a mobile church and rolling into a, uh, a school gymnasium and having church. And church became different. And so we, and we're still seeing that today as churches uh, no longer are these great big um, buildings that have to be so impressive. But we need to place more than that importance on us as a church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 we read, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we read this. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." We are the temple of God. God lives in us and dwells in us. So any place that we want to assemble, whether it's at surf camp with the kids, if that's where they want to assemble, that's great. If it's in a classroom at the school, if it's here in a retreat center, wherever we gather, we become that temple. That's what Lord's looking for is our heart. But in the middle of these dimensions that he's given here in chapter 6, it's interesting that he... Um, uh, talks to Solomon and gives him some encouragement. You know, he's telling him how big and how long and how wide and the, where the windows go and where all these things happen. So it's pretty technical. And so any of you who might be a draftsman might be saying, oh, wow, that's exactly right. And I know I know how to do that. I can draw this out. Right in the middle of that, he says this in chapter 6, verse 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, concerning this temple which you are building... If you walk in my statutes, here's those words again, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments, 
and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Important for us in area of church or civic leadership to know the, the, to know the uh, importance of the people that we serve and to know that we need to rely on God for that. And remember, as we look at these next couple verses, that there were no chapter breakouts. So the last verse of chapter 6 says this, So he was seven years in building it. And the first verse of chapter 7 says, But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. So he finished all of the house. Seven years, 13 years. There's been a lot written about why 7 verses 13. Was it his pride? Was it his importance? Was he just needed more room than God did? Or what was the whole purpose of this? Well, part of it was, I think, that he was given instructions of the tabernacle. See, the temple was exactly twice as big as the, as the tabernacle. The temple was twice as big as the tabernacle. So they had some instructions on that. But then he's building his own. So no chapter verses. The original text, the writer put these two verses right next to each other. The temple was completely covered in gold. But it doesn't say that about Solomon's house. It took seven years to complete it. The comparison to Solomon's house, though, does show something. It doesn't show that the temple was hurried. We built it in seven years and we're taking longer than years we got tired. But it may show the place that Solomon placed on his own personal comforts. Maybe he needed a little bit more hot tubs and baths and showers and things in his house. So it took him a longer to, to build it out. Could it be in these simple, unexpected texts that the deepest facts of his heart is being revealed? That he's having this giant house that he needs and then a house for, the, um, for his wife that came from Egypt? It's kind of interesting to think that at some point in, in Solomon's reign, his heart starts to go the other way and the, we've reached the climax and we start the fall of Israel. So chapter 7 deals with the construction of the temple and it's all of its furnishings and it, di- and it ends with this verse, verse 51 of chapter 7. So all the work of King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasury of the house of the Lord. So now he's completed the work. It's ready to go. And now we bring in the Ark of the Covenant. In chapter 8, we see the the Ark come in and he sets up the place of worship. So the first four verses of chapter 8. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and chief fathers of the children of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethram, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark to the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up, and they put them in the temple. 480 years they've been in that tent. 
480 years from the time they left the wilderness, they went into the wilderness, that they've been serving in that tent. And now they have the temple. In verses 10 and 11, the cloud comes back, the presence of the Lord. And it came to pass, when the priest came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon spoke. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell forever. When they came at the very end of the book of Exodus, we read this about the cloud. The cloud and the glory. Then the, This is uh, Exodus chapter 40. Then the, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Same thing happened when this glory of the Lord came in. The priest couldn't go into the temple. Moses couldn't go into the tabernacle. Then it talks about whenever the, the cloud moved. You have to do a little homework if you want to know what happens to the cloud because the cloud's here. You can look in Ezekiel and Hosea and find out what happens to the cloud uh, later on in the story of the nation of Israel as we continue to move forward. In verses 14 to 21, well, let's see, the, the cloud comes in. Okay, we did that. Verses 14 to 21, he gives a speech to the people. And then in verse 22, he starts a prayer. And I wanted to look at his prayer. And, you know, I think we've encouraged you before to look at the prayers of the Bible and see how they might lead you or guide you in praying. And I think that's one of the important things we can get from Solomon's prayer here as he's about to dedicate the temple. So chapter, uh, still in chapter 8, verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above, on the earth, below, like you. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Almost the same. Who keep your covenants and mercies and your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my fa- to, my servant, to your servant David, my father. I'm just going to highlight it. Jump to verse 26. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father, Verse 27, But will God indeed dwell in the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. How much less this temple which I built. 28, Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer of your servant in praying before you. I think that's something we don't do much of in our prayers. We don't cry out. We don't really say, Listen to my supplications, Lord. Hear me. Verse 30, and you may you and may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel. So that would be me standing up here saying to you, Lord, hear their prayers. When was the last time that you prayed, Lord, hear the prayer of so and so? We pray for so and so, we pray for what so and so is going through, but when do we say, Lord, hear their prayers? So tonight during communion, 
as you're walking about, pick somebody in the room and say, I'm going to pray God will hear his prayers. That's what Solomon did here. So as we look at this prayer, we can find little things in there that help us in our prayer life. Um, Verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn their back on you and they can and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you this in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive their sins of your people Israel and bring them back into the land which your father's given. So often when people are going through rough times, when people have what we might call backslid or where people aren't living a, uh, they're not having a strong walk with the Lord. Do we reject them or do we come alongside of them and do we pray that same type of prayer? You know, I know it's going rough. I know you can't figure God out in this situation, but I'm here to just be with you. And as we pray, you know, even if you've turned your back, even if you said, I don't want anything to do with God, whatever, he's praying to bring him back. In verse 34, then, oh, here, we read that one. Verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, it's almost like a people or a nation who've just gone too far then hear from heaven and forgive their sins and bring them rain. Verse 38, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards the temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive. So he just goes on and continues to to pray for the forgiveness. And then in verse 53, For you separated them from among the people of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought out our fathers and out of Egypt our Lord. I think it's important too sometimes to remind the Lord that we're his church. We're his chosen people. We're his sons and daughters. We're we're Christ's brothers. And we have that very special relationship with him. In verses 54 to 61, he puts a blessing on the people. In verse 61, he ends the blessing with, Let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as it is this day. You know, some of us talk about the things of the Lord. We talk about the things that we know, but we have a hard time walking it. We have a hard time actually doing it. Solomon is saying we must do it. And then in in the last part of that chapter, the temple is dedicated. In chapter 9, the Lord reminds Solomon of his responsibility. In verse um, 2, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, and he has appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have concentrated this house, and you have built to put my name there forever and my eyes and my heart may be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in understanding, do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying you shall not fall to you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments, my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, 
then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have concentrated for my name's sake, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among the people. And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsake they forsook the Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity upon them. So the Lord comes a second time. The building was done. His goals were accomplished. Doesn't it usually when you do your work come to a place where there's like you expect relaxation to come after it? You've worked hard all day. You finally get home. You sit down in the easy chair. You grab the clicker. You just kind of expect to be able to relax. That's a perilous time. When we get to that place to where it seems like our work is done, what are we going to fill our time with? What is Solomon going to do now? 20 years of building these two houses to the glory of the Lord and all the pomp and circumstances of setting it up What's he going to do now? The people were actually driven out of the land. The Lord calls the king to a new sense of his responsibility before the people. But as this story continues, it's a very sad condition that are, that are not kept by the king or the people. The temple will be destroyed and the people will be driven out of the land. And we'll be studying that as we go forward with the king's the New Living, the New Living Testament trans, uh, translated verse 7 like this, Israel will become a joke to the nations and an example and a proverb of sudden disaster. So in conclusion, some things that I think we should remember from the study that we can use in our life. In chapter 1, verse 36, we saw amen and that God would say so, we would also say yes. When we're praying, if our spouse or somebody in our prayer group says that this is what they're praying about, we want to say, Amen, so be it. But also let the Lord's will be done. In chapter 3, verse 3, we saw the word accept. It's so important as we minister, doing what the Lord has given us to be 100% love God and love others. In that loving others, there's really no exceptions. We need to do it completely. In chapter 3, verse 12, we saw to pray according to his will and to have his word out and to understand what God would have us to be praying for as we go through. And then here in chapter 9, verse 4, to walk before God, to have integrity of heart and uprighteousness and do all according to all the commandments that we have. Remember that the law of the Lord is perfect the testimony of the Lord is sure. The statutes of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord are pure. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous. And this should be what we look at them as. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. And moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that um, David and Solomon put such place.